whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. So for this episode, we're going to talk to a friend of ours named Greg Keeler. Greg was a professor at MSU in Bozeman for decades, and he was kind of known for his humorous songwriting and performing, but he's also an incredible poet, and he's been writing a sonnet a day for almost 20 years now. And thankfully, Mark Bodin, our friend at uh, Elk River Books, put together a collection of 180 of his sonnets called Bluebird Run. This came out in 2018. So we're going to talk to Greg, and we're also going to talk to him about... uh, He chose um, some selections from The Last Best Place, by a woman named Beatrice Murphy, who was a nurse in Butte. And these journal entries are from 1909, when she was working in Butte in a hospital. Um, A lot of humorous uh, accounts. It's kind of fun to, it's gonna be fun to talk about that because there's quite a few um, things that were published in Last Best Place that weren't actually from books. They were just journals that people found, and uh, this was one of them, and you'll see why Greg chose it. I was going to sing a brief a cappella song. Do it! Yeah! Because it's about a laundromat in Butte, and it has sort of the feelings of that Beatrice Murphy has in just her attitude. Perfect. It's called Lament of the Laundromat. It was out in Butte, Montana. It was at a laundromat. I first set eyes on a lady fair by the dryer where she sat. Ah, her eyes were like Jane Pauley's, her hair like Connie Chung's. She had the lips of Judy Woodruff and Diane Sawyer's lungs. But she paid me no attention. When I boldly made my move, and I told her just how glad I was that her tide was no improved, <laughs> and she feigned to still ignore me. I can't tell you of the hurt when I expressed my wild astonishment at our matching bowling shirts. So be mad to desperation with my eyes both wild and red. I seized her fresh dried underpants and I drew them o'er my head. So my hair stuck out the leg holes and the waistband creased my brow. And I thought for sure this lady fair would pay attention to me now. But she whisked the pants from off my head 
and stuffed them in her laundry bag. And she quickly trotted out the door, ignoring my little gag. And you may have my bowling trophies, and you may take my bowling ball. You may even have my bowling shirt. I'll be needing them none at all. For my days will be cold and empty, all my years till I am dead. For the one who failed to be impressed with her panties on my head. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> It's right up there with Lanigan's ball and all those pirates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. All right, so we're here with Greg Keeler. Uh, Greg, it's great to see you. Good to be here. Thanks for agreeing to uh, the interview. You know, I have to admit, I, I hadn't read any of your poetry. I was only familiar with you mostly through your music, which was always incredibly amusing to me. I loved your songs. Well, thank you. So I was surprised by this collection, which is not funny. No, I know, <laughs> I know. I, I, I guess I had to write it. It to totally out of character for me, but not really. I've always had that side, but. Yeah, I was. I just thought, okay. Well, actually, I've been writing a song on a day since practically since my wife died. That so that's ten ten years of a song. Wow. A day. I was going to ask her if you were still doing that. I don't know if Mark Bodine told me that or somebody said, Probably. ask him if he still writes a song on a day. Yeah, yeah. You're no, still doing it. I am. Oh, that's awesome. So, do you know what inspired it? Was it just what? What was it about that form that? Well, even before that, I I didn't wrote them once every day, off and on for many years, and I think it's because it's I, I like to write free verse. I have no qualms about writing in any form except a sonnet helps me. It's sort of like a metal can opener that that uh, in having to deal with the form. I get a poem out of myself, whereas with free verse, uh, it's kind of intimidating. There's so much leeway and mm. tradition behind free verse in a way more than, I mean, there's a longer tradition behind formal verse, but uh, there's a much more varied tradition behind free verse. And mm. uh, anyway. Would you, would you, uh, would you say that, one difference is that uh, with free verse, you know, there's a lot of bad free verse out there. <laughs> but if you write a sonnet, even if it's bad, it's still a sonnet. Oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But uh, I mean, I've got a few bad ones in there. And once once you write a bad one, or when you see a bad one, you sort of almost wish it was bad free verse <laughs> because, because has, it has a long tradition of cliches to draw from. The bad ones do, and and the sonnet form begs for cliches. That's one reason. And since since I published that, or maybe a year afterwards, I started writing sonnets without the rhyme scheme, but, mm. but just the basic five beats a line. Not necessarily iambic pentameter, but some kind of yeah. five beat line. And sometimes I shorten it just because I don't want it to 
go out too far on the page. I hate to admit that, you know. Mm -hmm. like, I like them to look good on the page as well as sound okay. No, that's a really important point that people don't really think about or are aware of, but Robinson Jeffers, you know, his lines are so long. When Peter Koch printed Point Lobos, I mean, the book is this. Oh, really? Yeah, because yeah. he, he would not, you know, break a line. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I've always, I think I'm, my strength from the back in the day said I'm my only dyslexic. So mm. I think I've always been intimidated by reading. So I started liking poems before I started writing fiction and prose of other kinds, just because you could get through it fairly fast without losing, without losing my attention, which, you know, it's probably why I, so, so I can say I write songs because I have a short attention span. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you could tell us, you know, briefly how you came into writing. Did you start as a song, a musician, or how did you get into? Well, I, I, I suppose, yeah, when I was a kid, I write off-color songs to get the approval of my classmates and stuff. I bet it worked. Uh, yeah, that's one reason I kept up writing songs. Mm -hmm. you know, I never have had any career in doing it, but I've always liked to uh, get an audience laughing. And I, I've always written poetry along with it, though my father wrote poetry. He was an English prof like I am. Huh. I was always sort of fascinated because he wrote sort of dense free verse in the images style, you know, that I'd read it and wouldn't understand it and stuff. And Where was he a professor? Oklahoma State. That's, ah. that's where I was born and partly raised. Hmm. My father and mother were from small towns in Oklahoma and, and they got degrees at Oklahoma State then. My father was in the Navy, and he got his degree, at, you know, his doctorate at University of Minnesota, and his first job was in Cortland, New York, and that's, I lived there for four years until I was eight or so, and we moved back to Oklahoma. I was born here, but we moved to Minnesota shortly after I was born. Hmm. But, but anyway, yes whatever your question was. <laughs> so did your mom teach too? Yeah, she taught family relations and child development. Oh, wow. And so she was a psychologist or? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just an FR and CD person, as they mm -hmm. used to call them. Uh, it was home economics. That was, oh, okay. It was in that department. And yeah, I, I, a lot of that stuff about growing up with my English professor father and my brilliant brother and my home ec mother is in that book called Trash Fish. That's mm. that's a, sort of a fishing bi autobiography and okay. confessional thing, you know, where it's funny and then towards the end it gets like, <laughs> Why don't you do that? Because I talk about how I really screw up in my life and stuff. And uh, I've always sort of liked to do that in, in either in poetry or in music. Or a lot of times in my songs, I'll just be a persona that's a total screw up. Mm. But 
So how did you end up in Montana? Uh, there was a job here back in 75 uh, that they notified me of, and I love Montana, I love to fish and a lot of other stuff. And I, I said, yeah, I'll come up for a year appointment or whatever it was, and then gradually worked into a permanent thing. So did you go to school in Oklahoma too? or? Yeah, I got my bachelor's and master's there and then got my doctorate in uh, Idaho State. Oh, oh doctorate of arts. Hmm. I tell people I got it out of a Cracker Jacks box. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they'd appreciate that at Idaho State. It was a, it was a good place to be at the time. Was it in creative writing? Or? No, uh, it was it, uh, a DA sort of insists that you generalize and that, oh. was, that was part of it and part of it was in uh, 18th century English poetry and part of it was in American literature. Mm. It was sort of all over the place. I took classes in art history and that's why I like that degree because mm. it sort of was was a generalist degree. Mm -hmm. So did you know Browdigan and those guys before you moved or took the job or did you? No, I met him like three, three or four years after I came here. Yeah, I got that book about that. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that was the only acquaintance I had with you before we met over in Missoula and did the music thing together. Right. right. You read the book? Yeah. Yeah, so you, you know the story behind how I met him as far as driving by his mailbox and putting a note saying, I want to do a reading over. Oh, really? You. And, and he eventually responded and took a couple students out there and he threw his cat at me and called William <laughs> Stafford a bad name. And <laughs> I thought, gee, this guy is, I'm not sure I'm too crazy about him, but he, he yeah, he knew I was a professor and had his own stereotypes of that. And so he was expecting me to be something else. But right. So you must have known Beef Tory too. Oh yeah, Beef, Beef, yeah. Beefster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'd come here quite a bit after Richard died and stop by and have a drink and yeah. want to know what was going on. He got all over the place. He really did, yeah. So that was a really interesting time to move here. Yeah, it was. It was. That was right after they made the movie Rancho. De oh, Life sure. In mm -hmm. There was a sort of a lot of excitement with movie stuff going on with Missouri River Breaks. Oh, stuff. yeah, right. And Hugo was teaching up at Missoula. So were you still uh, teaching? No, I retired 10 years ago. Okay, so. Or 11 even, no, 10. It's hard to, I retired in 80, or 13. Okay. And were you teaching literature or writing or both or what? Yeah, both. Okay. I taught creative writing and literature. And when I first came here, I'd teach whatever they told me. I had. I'd never worked for a newspaper or had a cl class in newspaper writing, but taught that for a while. Oh, really? I'd, <laughs> I'd learned from some of my students who who were actually working on newspapers. I was like, well, you tell them. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I posted one of your poems on Facebook the other day and told everyone I was going to interview you, and uh, several people chimed in and said, oh, I had him for a professor, and we lived right across the street. Oh, great. <laughs> 
That's cool. Well, yeah, it's good to know people still remember it, <laughs> out of it for a while. And I didn't, you know, you guys are the first people who've been in my house and quoting, I don't know. Oh, really? Time. Oh, yeah. I, I don't yeah. see, I, I go to, out to my lady friend's house every afternoon. That's what I called an appointment when I was. No. <laughs> <laughs> actually, she's going to stay with her brother tomorrow in Helena, so I don't know mm. that after all. And the guy I was going to walk with earlier, Michael Saxon, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lin a, Linda. Yeah, yeah. We're all friends and have been for years and years. And he and I take a walk every Wednesday, generally, but he wrote and said he's been commandeered to drive Linda around today. So. Mm. Oh, that's great. How are they doing? Um, we had her up to the college in Great Falls probably 10 years ago. Well, they're doing well. She's working on stories and and a, and a novel she's been working on for ages, so it's probably going to be pretty good once she finishes with it. And, and Michael is, uh, continues seeing students and even though he's been retired for less time than I have. I, I retired maybe four or five years before he did, but he's like four or five years older than I am. So, um, And I'm trying to figure out the timeline in my head as you're talking, but were you, were you here when Pearson was here? Did you? No, no, I missed that. So I that was, was before you. Right. I, I, I was pretty good friends with the Deweeses. Oh, sure. Part of that. Yeah. So how did this collection come about? Because I know the um, people at Elk River ended up publishing this for you. Yeah. Uh, I just hadn't published anything in quite a while. And I, I'm, I'm really terrible. I don't send my poems out, and I don't uh, generally solicit books. Everything I've had happen in that way has been through luck. Oh, really? Yeah. Like... Uh, I, I I did shop trash fish around the I didn't shop it around. That was luck too. What am I saying? A friend, <laughs> a friend Jim Hepworth came by, who's a publisher and knew the publisher of Counterpoint Press, Jack Shoemaker, and I said, "Oh, I've been working on something." And he said, "Let me see it." And he said, "Oh, I love this." And you know, mm -hmm. like your fantasy of someone looking at. I said I'm going to get my friend Jack Shoemaker to publish this as I can. So that's generally how I publish things. So with this one, though, I actually asked Mark uh, if he, you know, I, I knew he didn't really do that much publishing through his bookstore there, but he he mentioned that he was doing it, and I said, well, I I've never really I've self-published some of my sonnets, but I've never. I've published a couple of books of sonnets, Lord of Nothing and Dead West. But uh, he said, sure, we'll do it. Hmm. You know? So we did it. <laughs> it's a beautiful book. It really is. Yeah, well, he can take a lot of responsibility for designing it. Hmm. And you can take responsibility for that. <laughs> for the flyer the broadside yeah this was a great project to be part of and how did you decide the order or I, I put them I think pretty much in the order that they were written really yeah oh that's really interesting because it felt like there was a but but some of them I 
switched around so it'd be more a little more thematic. Like okay, like uh, I wondered about. I that. started out with Bluebird Run and end up with a poem called Bluebird. Mm. But this that's to my lady friend that I was talking about visiting, Catherine mm -hmm. Getz. She lives outside of town here in a way that uh, she was. She has been a friend. Was. Judy's best friend, my wife's best friend oh, for years. Okay. So I've known her practically or really since I've been here, I think. And so uh, when Judy took her life, I went out. I just immediately went mm. to Catherine because she was the only person, woman in town I knew who ah. knew Judy and mm. would know what I was talking about and stuff. Sure. And we thought, well, what the heck? Let's be friends, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And permanent friends. She could re she could re relate to the grief, I suppose. Yeah, she could. She could. I, I'm, she was very good in putting up with some of my darker poems mm. that I'd send her that that aren't in anything just because they de deal with with the details of the suicide and stuff. Ah. And didn't want to publish those, but I had to get them out. Right. Well, you did make a couple of vague references to her making the choice. So, so I, I wondered if that was what happened. Yeah, yeah. No, she was. She had all sorts of really awful, incurable, painful diseases. Oh. like three or four of them. And when she got the last two, oh. I, I didn't know. I, I, I knew something was going to happen, but I didn't know it would happen so soon. Mm. But, uh, yeah, a lot of the poems are about Judy and yeah. about Catherine, or to Catherine, and sort of making the transition out of grief into affection. Mm -hmm. So were these all written after she died? Yeah. Okay, wow. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So, I, yeah, I noticed, so it seemed to me like there was, the order was kind of, there was a lot of love poems early on, and then it sort of transitioned into, there was some, the, a little bit of a feeling, you know, there's, yeah, there's I, an understated I, theme, yeah, it seems I, like, throughout. I think that might come from uh, coming out of grief. Yeah. Because uh, the earlier ones were written chronologically earlier when I was, when it was still really raw. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then it starts to come out of that into the affection for Catherine. And then it goes out of that and gets back towards what I used to write, which, ah. you know, had an ironic right. bent to it. Yeah, and did notice that. So in that vein, how about if you read this one uh, as a wonderful love poem, a duck or two? <clears throat> oh, okay. Yeah, we were just out yesterday looking at the same area <laughs> of ducks <laughs> out of Cherry River. Mm -hmm. A duck or two. Where in the fuzzy future will we find the bower of leaves and shadows where at last the past relents and it's just us with our kind intentions? In these shallows where we cast about for reasons to get us through the day, you always spot a duck or two to make it all worthwhile. 
I didn't know what to say when you turned on the path and in the wake of our hopes asked me if I'm ever happy. Hmm. Of course, I saw my answer in your face and said so. Even in this time of snappy comebacks, a plain response has its place. Your common sense is what I've often lacked. My love for you is just a matter of fact. I love that poem. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's a beautiful. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that one in a while. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I, in the old days, I never would have put the word love in a poem. <laughs> <laughs> but it's in there a whole lot. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, one of the things I like about your sonnets, though, is how varied your language is. Like a lot of times it is. I don't know, Shakespearean, but then other times, like on 71, um, Carpe What? (laughs) Would you read that one? Sure. Um, Catherine told me she was getting a little tired of all these living for the day poems. (laughs) And and what I was getting at is my favorite line is in here is where you say, as years go by, we'll call them as we see them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oops, sorry. Got to rhyme with diem. That's right. (laughs) Carpe, what? (laughs) Here there'll be no cosmic last resort, no looming fate, no cringe-induced frost. If I write of death, feel free to snort or snicker when I mark the time we've lost. Forget that old cliche of carpe diem. We've seized one day, no doubt we'll seize another. As years go by, we'll call them as we see them. Living in the present tends to smother the longing we invest in hopes and dreams. Why not put off rolling in the clover? The future keeps us bursting at the seams. The present's really swell, but then it's over. And what's so wrong with dwelling on the past? As I recall, we really had a blast. Yeah, that is that is fun. The variation in language. <clears throat> yeah, my my newer ones are just a mixture of vernacular, and I'll read one after a while. Okay. Yeah, I wanted you to read this one too. This one feels a little bit like okay, going through grief and trying to give yourself permission to experience some joy deserve oh deserve yeah okay deserve do the flowers deserve the meadows do the meadows deserve the rain does the rain deserve its falling when all the questions are through and the timber line stops to show how vain we are to smear the talus slopes with doubt I'll seek you out among the shadows and tears and hold you by the sun-struck brook while trout punctuate the water where it mirrors the drooping columbine. The mind borrows darkness from the prison of the jilted heart where through the bars we name our sorrows after those we've tried to love. This tilted axis writes itself in mountain air. Friends deserve to find each other there. God. Yeah, that's a great one. That is so good. <laughs> so that line about the this tilted axis writes itself in mountaineer is just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Whatever 
good those are. It it comes from, which is not usually the case. It comes from exactly how I felt at the time. You know, and I was just trying to find language to accommodate the emotions that I was feeling at the time. And I, that's why it isn't very playful. You know, mm. although, although there's there's a sense of play in it, I guess, but it's. Uh, that comes more from the form, I think. It mm-hmm. helped, the form helped to balance me out, and so I didn't get too maudlin, at least in most of them. Yeah. Some, some of them I did. Yeah, I didn't feel that. No, I didn't either. And to just to, you know, the insights in every one of these poems, it's yeah. pretty dense. Well, thanks. Maybe, maybe I should read today's. Let's this do that. That'd be great. Yeah, it would be nice to have some contrast. I mean, it's not, it's not. So do you write them at the same time every day or? I, I get up usually between three and five and will be finished writing them by nine or so. And sometimes by seven or eight, depending on how early I get up. Huh. So uh, just to give a, a context, this was published in 2000. 18 and so they were written probably 16 17 <clears throat> or, or they might have been from some of the earlier ones you know like uh 2000 uh, judy died in 12 so okay. i started writing them in the summer of 12 and that okay. was probably they were pretty much as i say chronological right they uh they were written written between 12 and mm. 18 or 17 okay probably. and so for the for the audience's benefit there are 180 sonnets in this <laughs> collection it's an amazing amazing which means there's number. hundreds of them not right right, right right thousands actually <laughs> all right let's hear something new uh here's one about my wife it's called atheist mm. She called them cardboard, the cardboard enabled and gave them money whenever she could, the weathered ones who stood on the thoroughfare and begged. And they would say, thank you, God bless you, lady. And she would say, there is no God and no one is getting blessed. <laughs> Otherwise, why would you be standing out here holding a cardboard sign and why would I bother giving you $20? <laughs> Oh man, that's yeah. awesome! That is hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty much <laughs> straight from from life, <laughs> from life, right? Verite. Yeah, and it's all true too. That's fascinating. <clears throat> but yeah, she uh, she was that pretty unrelenting about her atheism. Huh. I I had some good friends who were good you know good christians and i in trash fish i talk about a friend i say he was a christian in the best of ways and mm-hmm. judy was reading the proofs of that and said there's no best of ways it <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds like nietzsche yeah. yeah she had a bit of that in her mm. So have you noticed an arc in the grief process? It's been 10 years. That's a while, but still not that long. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it, uh, 
Yeah, I, so, some people, I think, in their grief will try to like, go in and throw away their spouse's mm. clothes and belongings and try to start over and stuff. But I've just sort of lived in the house. She, the furniture is like she left it. Uh, every she brought all everything in here. The paintings actually have been the same since she died, and so. It, it's like I, some people say, well, you're just wallowing in it. And I said, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I, and Catherine never, you know, made, my friend never questioned what I was doing well, and stuff. And, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And so it, it turned out that uh, I, I still go, occasionally go into deep grief, but I know what I'm doing and uh, you know my therapy tells me to be mindful of when I do that so that I don't get sucked totally into it and right and sort of view those memories though they're painful as a gift rather and so mm -hmm. I did that for quite a while and now now I don't still have you know painful moments but it won't be the this constant stuff that I was feeling back when I wrote those Right. How long were you all together? Uh, we got married in 72. So oh, wow. So were... And then she died in 12, so 40 years. Wow. Now. So I read, when uh, I was going through a grief thing of my own, I read uh, Year of Magical Thinking. Have you ever read that? Mm -hmm. yeah. I love the way she talks about that, how, you know, Americans are taught to look for... <laughs> like solutions working out and pills right, and stuff right. rather than just feeling yeah. it and yeah. going through the whole experience of it. And uh, it sounds like that's kind of what you've been doing. Yeah. It's, it's like anybody who asked me if I were finding closure, I'd say, I hope yeah. not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Closure's a myth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I don't know. I mean, there are some things definitely to find closure on, but love is, isn't one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So what about Beatrice? You chose uh, to... Yeah, I, I taught out of the last best place for years ah, and years okay. up there, and, and I always liked it when I got to Beatrice. Cause, <laughs> uh, when she would walk in on patients, Patients battling with enema cans and stuff, <laughs> but but also the just the offhand way she talked about fixing messed up miners who really would come in in awful shape. His but foot she, was crushed. And yeah, yeah. And she'd sort of she she'd put the actual thing in, but then use some euphemistic language to to sort of pretty it up a little bit. Yeah. So. And there's points in there where she says, uh, you know, I did X, Y, and Z, and I didn't swear. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and somebody has the gall or the nerve to hug her at one time. Right. And she said, I did my best to register the most stern and proper respect. <laughs> but you she she had you can tell she had her tongue in cheek a whole, a whole yeah. time. Probably had to. Very funny. Deal with the dark side of what she did. So, just to clarify, we're talking about Beatrice Murphy, who was a nurse in Butte in uh, the early days, and she 
uh, wrote a journal about her experience that was uh, written during her time at a hospital there in 1909. And they published part of her journal in the, the last best place. So Greg chose that as his pairing for this episode. And I'm, I'm curious about why you chose her, though, that out of all the for one thing, writing a sonnet every day is sort of like a psychological oh, yeah. diary and stuff. But sure. I, I look at her entries, at least in here, sort of like sonnets. They're a little longer, but but it's prose, so she gets the option of going on. Mm -hmm. But but it's just what happens during the day. But every one you can sort of see a, a little art going through it, and and. Uh, and there's insights in there too. Like, yeah. you know, she, like, I get the feeling she probably never married. She was she like, I'm not going to marry unless the guy knows how to cook or something. Yeah. yeah but you can tell that, uh, what's his name? Uh, not Dr. McGregor. Oh, McDonald. Is it McDonald? Something like that. Some doctor she yeah, has yeah. a crush on. Yeah. Uh, She's like, I just stopped and stared at his arms <laughs> walking down the hall. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, she, she more than a lot of the fiction in there, or, or the other journal or journals and, and nonfiction things in the last best place. Hers just seemed to readily put you on the spot. Yeah, Mary McLean sort of does that. Mm -hmm. You know, and you can see her on her back porch being disgusted with all the married folks down there, but. <laughs> with, with Beatrice, it's more like, I'm going to get through this day. Right. I'm going to be happy about it. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, yeah. she ends it up with a wonderful day or yeah. something like that. Right. Yeah. So I, I contacted the Butte Archives to get yeah, the, totally. the whole thing. And she also sent me the, um, she wrote a diary of a trip to Yellowstone Park. Oh, really? It's about the same length as mm -hmm. this one. And it's got that same tone. She she kind of establishes the characters <laughs> early on and then talks about um, they were there for about a week. And there's a lot of like drama that goes on during that week. Like she becomes friendly with this one guy and then for some reason he gets mad at her. So there's a there's sort of an yeah. arc there too. Yeah, it's true. pretty cool. So it's a shame she never got any of that published. Yeah, I know. I know. But uh, maybe someday someone will. I think it's Teresa Jordan who right. found those pieces for the last best play. Yeah, it's that's always going to be there. And but yeah, during her lifetime, I know she wanted to be a writer. Oh, really? Yeah, it <clears throat> something like she had plans for hmm. publishing something. But it's funny when. You, you're reading through there and you come to the writerly writerly writing with mm. where like she says spent the afternoon not a but building castle in spain yeah. you know, <laughs> which is the way they used to talk about daydreaming uh -huh. think, but, yeah then came back to earth right <laughs> then came back to earth right? i wonder if she could get it published though nowadays mm. with all the racist stuff in there oh there is some racist stuff in there that's true I, <laughs> was that in her longer one? I didn't. It's not in there. Oh, okay. It's definitely in the longer one. Oh. And um, Richard Gibson down in Butte wrote an article about her, and he he mentioned it. Yeah. He said, "Yeah, there's oh. one scene where she has to 
I didn't know about that. But she has what, to. What were you going to say? She has to um, care for a, a black woman. And yeah, she talks about holding her nose. And oh, God. Yeah, stuff. it's pretty repellent. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, it's a product of the times. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. too bad, though. Yeah. Oh, shit. Now you shattered my image. <laughs> <laughs> I saw uh, it was compassion. Right. It didn't work that way. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, it's probably good to remember that even though everybody likes to talk about how multicultural Butte was and, mm. you know, a lot of different ethnicities living there, but people forget they were a lot of times at each other's throats. So. That's true. Literally fighting in the streets. Mm -hmm. Well, and then they passed the ordinance where they weren't allowed to do business with Chinamen again. Right. That was pretty bad. Uh, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. $5 yeah. fine. That, that was beautiful. Like you say, when you get all of those different ethnicities and mm -hmm. backgrounds together, you're going to get some inviting strife sure so do you plan to put together another collection or are you well, I, i'm waiting for someone <laughs> <laughs> this this time my friend an ex-student uh, chris shaper who teaches at loyola in new orleans uh, said he and his friend who runs the creative writing program there uh uh Mark Yakov, I think, is they're going to take a look at, they said, select some out of the thousands there and send them to us, and mm. we'll make a small collection. Well, that's great. So, But that won't be probably for a year, but mm. who knows. Uh, during COVID, I had two things going, and both of which evaporated just because people weren't getting together and uh, had other concerns, but that's all right. I, I I'm going to keep writing these. It doesn't. Good. And I'm, I'm not. I should be, but I'm not that concerned about getting them published. I'd, I'd knowing that you guys like this book gives me. Well, oh, I, I think it. I you think totally it, should publish them. Yeah. Well, uh, I should also mention in on my Facebook thread that where I uh, posted the, the one poem, I think it was McCumber, mm -hmm. said, Greg Keeler is one of our best poets in Montana. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's how that, he was my roommate. That was <laughs> he got me to writing for the Big Sky Journal. Oh, is that right? Several cool. years back during my yeah. midlife crisis. Mm. Did you like teaching? Yes, for the most part. Sometimes it'd just be really st towards the end there. I, I was having a little trouble because students would, like in my freshman, sophomore uh, short, short fiction class, I'd have a young woman wanting to write on the zombie apocalypse. And, and I'd say, that's okay. And yeah, that's fine. And she said, well, it's really true. You can look on the net and there's zombie guns. And I we live in strange times. I know. And I, I didn't want to insult her. And I said, oh, really? In the class. Some of them said, 
yeah. And the <laughs> others sort of look at each other in horror, like, oh my God, is this, are we in college or what? <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty disturbing what people believe these days. Oh, no kidding. It wasn't just that. It was, that that was sort of negative about it. I, I never was, as my colleagues would, I'm sure, confirm very good in committee meetings. I mean, I, <laughs> I I didn't get mad and pound the desk or anything. I'd just clam up. And, mm. and like once a colleague said, Brag, they're getting rid of your contemporary lit class. Do something. I said, what, huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you can't do that. <laughs> so they didn't, but they would because I just didn't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> when a certain type of language starts going by me, I tune it you out. tune out, yeah. I don't try to. It just doesn't register. I'm sure Aaron's the same. Oh, I <laughs> was sitting here thinking... It's definitely the worst part of academia is the mm. administrative stuff. Because, I mean, really, you're there to teach. And you'd think with all the vice presidents they hire, they could have somebody else take care of it. But mm. <laughs> <laughs> More every year. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like I think part of it is people say, okay, I'll get into academia and do the stepping stone through the professorships and then ultimate one up into uh, administration where the salaries take a quantum leap or not. Or not. It's really true because, you know, as you know, being a professor, you make tens and tens of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you want to make money, you got to be an administrator. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so, so many people want to do that. It's like, well, we've got to make more positions for them mm -hmm. so they can do it. I, I'm sure that's not the logic behind it, but it seems like it. Right. Speaking of projects, um, have you thought about putting your music together or mm. reissuing some of that? I mean, it's hard to find. I've looked for it. And yeah. I self-published a book of my songs, but... Uh, I mean, like putting out an LP or a Oh, oh. yeah, I thought about that. I thought, and, and some people have even started on the project, but, but like with so many things, it never got finished, but... I'm just going to ask you to read one last poem, The River. The River. I called the river light and it left me as fast as it could. I called the river wind and it laughed in my ears. I bid the river last and it fell apart before my eyes. Chagrined, I left the river to its own devices, but it followed me at night among the stars. I told the river about my crisis and it held the moon until I held my tongue. I tasted the river in my tears and it turned to an ocean. I held the river in my arms where it struggled until I learned the paths of my blood. I saw the river spin a leaf and realized the futility of fathoming the past for what will be. Greg, thank you so much. This yeah. has been a blast. And thanks for awesome. having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening to Breakfast in Montana. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Isle of Books and Books in Butte, Isle of Books in Bozeman. And I also want to mention that the music in this program is written and performed by my partner, Aaron Parrott, who is multi-talented and amazing. 
We've been talking to Greg Keeler, who published a collection of amazing sonnets called Blue, Bluebird Run in 2018. And he asked us to pair him up with a woman named Beatrice Murphy, who was a nurse in a Butte hospital. Uh, she wrote a journal, and it was published in the uh, Last Best Place. The journal is from 1909, when she was working as a nurse in Butte. Join us again next time for Breakfast in Montana.